I'm Nora McInerney, and this is The Terrible Reading Club. There's just something about turning 40 or 35 or 50 or whatever feels like the midpoint of your potential lifespan to make you look back at the choices you made to get to wherever you are right now. What would have happened if you had gone on that second date? Or if you had skipped it? What would have changed if you had taken another job, if you had missed that train, if you had returned that phone call or sent it to voicemail? If you had the chance to wake up one day in the life you used to have, with all the knowledge you have today, what would you do? If there's another tale as old as time, it is grief. It's the process of losing a person you love and living with that loss. This Time Tomorrow is a novel about longing, grief, and love and acceptance told through time travel. And I had no idea of any of that when I picked it up. That's a crazy way to go through life. I mean, as a bookseller, I guess I kind of wish that that was how it worked all the time. Like, I wish that everyone was like you, where you could just be like, it's this one, this one. What's it about? Who cares? Not telling you. (laughs) Secret. It's a secret. But thank you. And I am impressed that that is how you approach reading books. That's the author, Emma Straub, who is also the co-owner of the Books Are Magic bookstores in Brooklyn. And it's a small miracle that we were even able to talk for several reasons. First, we booked the interview for a Monday. And boy, did Monday, Monday. But I'm also literally breathless because Albert, my beautiful locksmith, is re is fixing my door right now. Yeah. And yeah. I, my office yep. is on the fourth floor. And so I mm-hmm. keep running up and down the stairs. Yes. Yep. It's, this is why we scheduled a Monday interview. Also, they're chopping a tree down outside <laughs> the wall, which is perfect. That's great. That's what listeners want to hear. Listeners want to hear two middle-aged women breathing raggedly after, <laughs> after I go outside. And I'm like, guys, how long does it take? How long does it take to chop God. down a palm tree? Okay. Like, I don't know. Palm tree sounds, that sounds hard. That sounds hard. It, it's very difficult. And also they are an interesting tree. When you see inside of them, they're kind Ooh. of gross looking on the inside. I yeah. believe it. And, Hold on. I'm sorry. This is Albert, my locksmith. Oh my perfect. God, Nora. I it's swear perfect. to God. It's okay. Hold please. I'll be right back. I'm so sorry. While Emma is answering the door, my computer starts to overheat. Oh my God. Marcel, my computer is so fucking loud, but it all works out and we get into it. All right, let's try this again. Now, because most people don't select books using my blind selection process, you might want to actually know what the book is about in some more specific terms. On her 40th birthday, Alice is not thriving. Her life isn't bad, it's just not great. She has a small apartment in Brooklyn, She's just broken up with her boyfriend. She's working in admissions at the private high school she graduated from. Her father, who raised her, is dying, and her friends are married with kids and living in the suburbs. She drunkenly wanders back to her childhood home, falls asleep in a tool shed, and wakes up to find herself in her 16-year-old body and her 16-year-old universe. Her brain is 40. 
but her body and her world are in 1996. Her dad is in 1996, and he's not yet sick. She spends the book trying to figure out how to get back to the present day, back to her 40-year-old body, back to that 40-year-old universe, but she also gets to see herself and her father through her 40-year-old eyes. The dad she left in the present day was a shell of the father that she had grown up with. But the father that she lived with as a teenager was in his 50s, ancient when you are a teenager, but young when you're 40. Emma's own dad died in September 2022, about four months after this book came out. So when we speak, she is a well-established professional writer and still a beginner at the dead dad stuff. I am also a member of the dead dad club. Yeah. So I have something I'm going to put in the mail to you (laughs) after this. (laughs) And uh, you had this piece of writing that is not your book, but I want to talk about it. Yeah. About the things that you all took yeah of your dad's yeah and uh, I have my dad's watch yeah as well and I have two of his watches which is a point of contention <laughs> with one of my brothers he's <laughs> like and how'd you get two how'd you get two it's like he gave me one before he died he didn't know yeah <laughs> he didn't know he didn't know he didn't know but objects do have this strong connection or this strong sort of power to connect us to the people we love who we have lost. Tell me about your watch. Yeah. I mean, this watch that I'm wearing now, it's a fancy watch. It's a goddamn Rolex, you know? And my dad, I mean, I remember him wearing it my entire life. And it was like one of the things like, My mom, her way of processing has been deaccession things. Mm. You know, there, there, there are those who like, you know, 10 years will pass and not an item has been removed from their loved one's closet. But my mom, it was like that day she was like, what do you want to take? And so I didn't take home his watch right away. But I took home so many sweaters, (laughs) so many sweaters, like probably as many sweaters as I had in my closet. That's how many sweat, like my sweater supply doubled basically. And we have all been wearing them. My husband and my two kids and I wear them all the time. And it just makes us feel really good. And then only recently, like maybe a month or two ago, I finally took the watch. Mm. And <laughs> I wrote that piece about it for GQ. And the funny I got the funniest response, like immediately from one of my parents' best friends. <laughs> this woman, Judy. God bless Judy. Judy was like, Oh, your dad and his stuff. They, your parents came to visit us. She didn't say what year. I'm gonna guess late 90s. Let's let's call it the turn of the millennium. She was like, your parents came to visit us or we were going to Madrid together. 
and your dad left his watch, left his Rolex at airport security. And I was so shocked to watch as soon as he could, he like went and he bought another one. Like he, he replaced it. And so the watch that I was like, Oh my God, it's my whole childhood. Like, is it my childhood? No, it's, it's probably not like the one from my childhood lives in Madrid somewhere, you know, definitely went home with somebody else that night. I don't know. I just lo- it, like, it, yeah, it, yeah. it, it, it made me laugh so much because I'm like, yeah, like I have been like, like looking at all of these photographs of my dad from my childhood where he's wearing this, but it's not, it's you not. know? <laughs> and so like, it's, I don't know. I'm taking it as a reminder that like objects are important. And like, it, it is still the thing that was on his wrist yeah. every day for, let's say the last 20 years, which is, you know, half my life, but it's also a nice reminder that objects sometimes are replaceable and that like we give them the meaning that we want them to have and that it's not like how many people do you know who have lost their wedding rings or what you know like we all those of us who are like messy slobs in particular lose stuff and yeah I don't know I just thought it was so funny that like I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. It's also, my dad had told me, uh, you know, we had had a loss in our family and we were obsessing over things because also the things are what somebody leaves behind. Yeah. And he had said to me, these things are your grandmothers and they're not your grandma. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to analyze you, which is I've read all of your books. Oh God. Uh, Like if you could ask me, I've, I've read all of your books. I love your books. And I was not emotionally prepared for this one. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I wasn't ready. I cried out loud. And I, I can only imagine what it did to you to write it. Tell me about what your life is like as you put this book together, as you even come up with the idea for this book. Yeah. So my dad was in the hospital in 2020. In August. I mean, my dad had been in and out of the hospital, I would say, for the last 15 years. It was not unusual for him to be in some sort of a health crisis. But in 2020, he spent a few months in the hospital, and it was so different than it ever had been before. I don't know, like, even though my dad was not literally by any means like a Superman kind of guy. Like this was a man who like did not believe in exercise, but did believe in vodka and cigarettes, you know? So it's not that I was like, he's so healthy. He's going to live forever. It was more just that he had always been fine. Like his family is from Wisconsin and like, they're all like, enormous, sturdy people. Sorry, my my mother is texting me from her friend's phone because she doesn't have service on their walk. Okay. You're like, Judy, it's not the time. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, everyone is named Judy or Susan or Barbara. Okay. Um, Which if you're looking for a baby name and you're like, I want it to be so unique. Yeah. 
pick a boomer name, or I think the most subversive <laughs> name you could choose is probably Jennifer. Yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> choose the most common name for the women you know, and then name your baby that. There will not be another Jennifer in the class yeah. of 2030. Like there there's no Stephanie. There's no. no Jennifer. Not a single one. Uh. There's no Stacy's <laughs> being born anymore. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so my dad was in the hospital and it was August of 2020. I'd been writing a novel and all of a sudden I was not writing anything because it was the spring of 2020 and I was suddenly doing Zoom first grade and Zoom preschool. And so I'd stopped working on what I was working on. And when my dad was in the hospital, we talked a lot about books and we talked about writing. And one day he was just like, you should write a book about a woman visiting her father in the hospital. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what a prompt. And yeah. it like... I mean, it sounds so, so weird and implausible. Like, I mean, if you just remember, I'm sure you do, as we all do, like how implausible everything felt in the spring of 2020. And I just, I saw it all so clearly. Like I saw the idea which was, yes, about a woman visiting her father in a hospital, but yes, it was time travel. And yes, it was like the 90s. And yes, it was the Upper West Side and all of these things. And I also, I also understood what it would feel like, I think, in the way where like you bump into something and you know that it's going to leave a huge, like, purple bruise. And I was ready for that bruise. Like, I wanted that. And I, it just came from being like, oh, fuck. Like, this is happening. This is really happening this time. Whether he dies right now in the next month or whatever, or if he lives for another 10 years, like it's really happening. Like I was, I was looking straight at it, at his death, my dad's death for the first time. And when I started writing it, I mean, it's the kind of thing that like <laughs> your publisher, my publisher says, do not say this to people. Do not, don't go on Nora's podcast and say this. I wrote it so fast. I wrote it so fast because I was ready to write it. Like the only book that I've written this fast ever was The Vacationers, which was because I had spent like two years writing it badly. And then I was like, oh, I should send them on vacation. And then I was like, oh, okay. And it was so easy because I already knew all the characters because yeah. I, I, I'd already written the book like 12 times the wrong way. Yeah. So I wrote it so fast. And like, I can't imagine that I will ever feel more grateful to myself for doing something when I did it. So your dad gives you this idea, gives you this nugget of an idea, which is you should write a book about a woman visiting her dad in the hospital. This book pours out of you. And this is me analyzing you. A reason that it pours out of you is 
because there's so much of you in this book. And I think there's a lot of us and a lot of every author in their fiction, right? Even if it's not pulled from your life, you're pulling characters, scenes, turns of phrase, our work becomes an expression of our worldview, even if we're trying to express somebody else's worldview. But the main character did grow up on the Upper West Side. (laughs) You do set it in the year where you turned 16. And this book is not just about time travel. It is not just about a woman facing her father's mortality. It is also about this time of life where regardless of how alive where on the alive spectrum your parents lie, you also have to think about your own life and the fact that you are, if you are lucky, at the halfway point. Yeah. And thinking about all of your choices, thinking about what led you to this point and what could have led you just like one step in either direction. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, my, (laughs) what I, what I have come to believe and what is, true in the book, is that lives are pretty sticky. It would be hard to change your life enormously, given like a few little variables, like that we are who we are. But of course, it's also true. The decisions that you make lead to other decisions. Like the only reason that I have a bookstore right now is because (laughs) when I was extremely pregnant, when I was eight months pregnant with my second child, my husband wanted to move. Like our place was just like too small. And I was like, well, okay, if we're going to move, we have to move close to my favorite bookstore which is where I I used to work, this bookstore called Book Court that was in Cobble Hill for 30 years. And so we did. And then Book Court closed (laughs) because the owners retired. Like, it wasn't like a sad, like, oh, whoa, the fate of independent bookstores. Like, it it was great for them. They sold the buildings, like, whatever. But I was like, so what am I supposed to do? I just moved here so I could be close to the bookstore and like my like postpartum hormones (laughs) told me quite clearly that we could either move again or we could just open a bookstore. We could just open our own bookstore. And so that's what we did despite not knowing anything and not knowing anything And here we are six years later, you know, and like, it wouldn't, my life is largely the same. Like the main things are the same, but there's also this huge addition that has really changed my life. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that there's something about turning 40 that really makes you look at your choices and look at your decisions and ask if they were the right ones or the wrong ones. And I know I have a handful of friends who like myself included, I guess, who have started totally different careers after turning 40 men, women, like 
all different kinds of people. Because I think it is when you ask yourself, like, fuck, like, is this it? Is this it? (laughs) Yeah. And what have I done? Yeah. What have I done in good ways and bad ways? And you never know what choice is the choice that led you to the other choice. And you can look back and sometimes you know it when you're doing it. Sometimes you do know it when you're doing it. But the worst part about being a person is that we grow from those mistakes and then we would never have made them. This version of ourselves would have never made them. I love, I I feel like you should have a whole other podcast that's just called The Worst Part of Being a Person. (laughs) The Worst Part of Being a Person. And there's so many. But it's like, you could not, you couldn't pay me to be 16 again. Yeah. But- I don't think that there is a person listening to this who, if they did wake up after a rager on their 40th birthday, if they did wake up in their 16-year-old body, who wouldn't see themselves and see the world and see all of those choices differently. And I wonder how fun that must have been to write and to kind of like re-experience that self. It was so much fun. And like what I loved about it was that like it let me be in those places again. It let me time travel. Like it absolutely worked. The book works. And like I think it would work. I think it works for other people too where like maybe other people didn't like chain smoke (laughs) as a 16-year-old the way I did or didn't drink I don't know, too much malt liquor or whatever, like all the things that I was doing. But I think that my hope, my like most fervent desire is that this book works as well for the reader as it did for me. And I think part of it is that like as a writer, as a fiction writer, I do think about my audience, like probably more than I should, probably more than is healthy, especially after opening the bookstore. Like I I do feel really aware of the audience and their expectations and my readership. But with this book, because of when I wrote it and because of what, what was happening locally and globally, I didn't think about anyone else Mm. at all. And I think that I hope that it really is a case of the hyper specific actually making space for everyone, you know, where like, if I, if I'd written a book that was like, she was 16 living in a nameless town with a, you know, whatever. Like if I had, if I had tried to make it as universal as possible, I don't think it would work as well. Like, I think that like, I've always been scared of writing books that take place in New York city. Mm-hmm. People have feelings about New York city. If you love it, if you hate it, if you're a native, if you're, if you've never been, if you went once on a school trip and got lost at the Statue of Liberty, I don't know, like people have their own associations and it's been so well captured in art and literature and film. And this time I just put aside all of those fears and I was just like, here's mine. Here's what mine really looked like, my world in 1996. 
It was, yeah. I liked being there. <laughs> yeah, I could tell. And I, I mean, I grew up in Minneapolis and in 1996, I had never smoked a cigarette and was never going to because <laughs> I had gone to dare and I had written an essay about it and mm, wasn't going to be me. And I was also never going to drink. Yeah. And I was also going to wait until I was married to have sex, which <laughs> literally my parents were like, why? And I was like, because... I go to Catholic school and <laughs> I believe in it. Okay. So it's uh, my choice. And also no one has asked to have sex with me yet and no one wants to. And so it does make it easy to keep that promise to myself and to God. I asked when I knew that I got to do this uh, conversation with you, I asked our listeners if they could time travel if they could go back to a time when a person they loved who has died was still alive, what would they do? And so many of them pretty much said that they would do nothing pretty much, right? Yeah. Like they would do the normal life things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that like, you know, it's, I mean, and I'm still new to this, you know, like I'm, my dad died six months ago. And so I, I'm, I'm definitely still understanding grief and my own grief and all the little sort of adjustments and periods, but I know that one for sure. You know, like I knew that, I mean, that's the whole book. Like if you asked me to like close my eyes and like picture my father, I would picture him sitting in his spot at the kitchen table in, in my parents' kitchen in the house that I grew up in, which my parents moved out of seven years ago, seven and a half years ago. But that's what I picture. That's what I picture. And that's, so that's what I wrote. And like, that's all I would want. You know, I mean, I, like, I, I don't want to, not that I would want it, that I would want to be 16, but it would be just us sitting and talking. Like, it's not, I don't know. I think that like the, I'm sure that like those big moments, those big days, like a wedding day or, or the birth of a child, you know, like those like huge momentous occasions, obviously you would want that person there, but it's not because you want them there on that day. It's not because you want them to see that one moment. It's because you want them to experience that next phase of your life with you. So you, you can sit at the table and talk about who was an asshole at the wedding or whatever the next day. Like, it's not that moment. It's all the tiny moments surrounding those moments. Like, yeah. that's the stuff. That's the stuff of life. That's the stuff that's so hard, I think, to understand. <laughs> As a parent, like, I find it. I'm, I'm so bad at it. Like at the, like being present and oh, I know. just appreciating the whatever, because I'm like, well, no, cause I have to play in summer camp. And like, if we haven't booked the plane tickets for the thing and the, blah, 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 you know, like I'm like all anxiety and all planning ahead and like just freaking out about 
whatever. And I don't like, I don't think about it, but like yesterday, my nine-year-old said to me, we were coming up the stairs to like, for the kids to go to bed. And my nine-year-old said, when I'm a grown up, I'm going to buy this house so I can live in it. And my husband and I were like, where, where, yeah. where are we going to be? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know. And I was like, I think we'll be here. I don't, we're not planning to move. Like, I don't know. I like, and I like had a, it, a flash of it of like, Oh my God, of course he does. Because this is his child. <laughs> yeah. And this is his home and you made him feel safe and yeah. loved and happy. And I think that is, I think that's a good sign. I really do think it's a good yeah. sign. You're writing this and your dad is still alive as you're writing this. How much of this process, this story do you share with him while he's still here? Yeah. So I wrote the whole thing and I told him, I mean, you know, we had talked about it in the hospital, but then he was in the hospital for months after that and had this horrible, like intense life-saving life prolonging heart surgery. And then he came home and I mean, he was in rough shape for a long time. And so I didn't talk to him about it for a few months. And then I, like, I, I sort of reminded him like, by the way, like I really am, I really am writing this book we talked about this. We talked, you were totally on board and he was still totally fine with it. I mean, the only reason that I wrote this book is because I knew he would be a hundred percent okay with it, which is no small ask, you know, like it's a, it's a wild thing to do to somebody. But then I finished and I gave it to him and I don't know. He was still like, he, he was not, he wasn't like totally healthy again, but so it took him a little while and then he read it and he said, Emma, you know, it's, um, it's a lot of personal stuff in there. (laughs) And I said, I know there is like, is, is there anything that you want me to change? Like, is there anything that feels too revealing or, you know, that you want me to take out? And he said, what do you think I want you to change? And I said, nothing. And he said, that's right. What parts were you afraid would be too personal for him? And also, maybe for the sake of our readers, what kind of a writer was your dad? Yeah. Okay. So my dad, Peter Straub, was a horror novelist. He wrote scary-ass books. They were – they started out more, like, supernaturally, but pretty quickly. Like, certainly – even in my childhood, they ended up being much more like dark psychological horror novels, like much more about like the real 
horrible things that humans do to each other rather than like vampires. And in the novel, the father character is a science fiction writer who has written like one like super sort of campy time travel book um, that has been turned into a long running television show. And that was part of how I like gave myself permission to do it is that like I made sure that the character, the two characters in the book, the father and the daughter were fundamentally different from me and my dad. Like the daughter character is turning 40 and she is, she's an only child. She is single. She is child-free, which are three things that I am not. And the father is single and has written just this one, one book. And like my parents were married for 56 years. And I just, I wanted to take out everybody else. Yeah. I wanted to take out everybody else because I didn't want it to turn into a thing where like, I didn't want anyone else in my family to feel, I don't know, like misrepresented or hurt or anything. Like I was just like, nope, snip, 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 snip. It's not about you. It's not about you. But my dad, he read the book twice, three times, four times, I think probably five or six times total. And that was still like, you know, months before it came out. So we had a lot of time with it and with each other, which was incredible because we could talk about it. And like my dad and I were always like hilarious together, like hilarious, like a truly great team and much more likely to be sarcastic and like teasing rather than be like, I love you so much. Yeah. Like we were, that was not us. Gross, gross. <laughs> That's gross. And what this book did was it let us have those conversations much more plainly than we ever had in my 40 years of life previous. Like it made it, he understood what I was doing, but he was also hilarious. Like when I gave it to him or like a few months after I gave it to him, we were talking about the episode of, there was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Albert Brooks stages his own memorial service so that he can listen to what his friends say about him. And we were talking about that. And my dad was like, you know, I, I think I would like to do that. And I was like, dad, I literally just wrote you a whole novel. I wrote you a whole novel about how much I love you. And he said, yes, but what will the poets say? <laughs> yeah and he meant it you know what i mean like yeah. he was he was 100 joking and teasing me and also he 100 meant it and like i will never be i can't imagine feeling more grateful i mean i i said this earlier sort of the, about being able to write a book in the time that i wrote it where yeah. like he was able to read it and appreciate it. And more importantly, it made us, it meant that like when he died, 
I mean, I felt obviously profoundly sad. I still feel profoundly sad every day. But I also felt 100% square. Like there was nothing that I was like, oh, I never got to tell him, whatever. And there was no, he never got to tell me, whatever. Like I just felt 100% like rock solid, which like, I can't imagine that seems impossible. Like it seems impossible, but it's true. That was what writing this book did. And so it looks like a book, you know, it looks like a book. It just looks like any other book, which is hilarious to me that like, when you walk into my bookstore, any bookstore, you're like, Oh yeah, that's a novel. That's a novel. That's a novel. Like as like, they're all the same when like this one, absolutely changed my relationship with my dad. Well, no, it didn't, it didn't, it's not that it changed the relationship, but it helped us clarify the relationship like audibly and vocally and publicly, you know, like it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. It's an amazing gift. It's an amazing gift to him and to me. I mean, the not wonderful part is the part where I'm like, oh man, just realizing how badly I supported my friends who lost people before where you're like, oh, I sent a card. Great. Wow. (laughs) Done. 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 Check. Handled it. Oh God. But I have... In the last six months, I have, there have been so many people who have checked on me over and over again. Like, and I don't mean my like close, closest friends. I mean, the people who have been through it before and who understand, like just the people who understand. And I feel like I have already been able to do that for other people. And like, it just, I just feel like it's one of those, it's one of those parts of life, like having a baby where like, before it happens to you, if it happens to you, 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 you have really no sense. You have really no sense. Yeah. You're like, okay, so the stork, the stork comes. Also, you're like, okay, you had it over. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Oh, he's here. All right. (laughs) Get over (laughs) Right. But like now I just feel so grateful to the enormous, ever growing community of people who have experienced loss and live to tell about it. It's like such a long experience. I knew that it hadn't been that long since your dad died, but six months is just so fucking fresh and you. (laughs) Damn. You You should have seen me. When it was like one month, it was yeah. one month, and I went to Italy on on a on a book tour because why, I, of course, yeah. Well, I canceled yeah. like I canceled so yeah. many things. I canceled yeah. everything. He died on September fourth, and I had all these book festivals and things that I was supposed to do in September, and I canceled everything. But then at the end of October, I was supposed to go to Italy for my Italian publication and do all this stuff. And I was like, you know what? He would 
really want me to do that. He would really want me to do that. So I went and I did it. And I thought at least all the questions are going to be translated. (laughs) So I'm going to have a little buffer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I did. And when I burst into tears over and over again (laughs) with these Italian journalists, making them all so deeply uncomfortable. The translation is just crying in American. (laughs) (laughs) Like I felt fine. I I felt upside down and backwards and I was still happy to be doing it. Like I was happy to be doing it. And then like, I mean, I, I left this room in this hotel where I'd been doing like where I just had five or six long interviews back to back. And there was like a little library, like, you know, like, a, like a little free library in a, like a hotel, whatever. I just looked and one of my dad's books was there. And I just thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there he is. Here we are. We're doing this together. Oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. And like, I'm not a person. I'm not a person who believes in like anything hoogly moogly, (laughs) but like that happened. But like two days after he died, I was walking home. I dropped, I think it was the first day of school. I dropped the kids off at school and I was walking home and like around the corner from my house, I saw this photograph leaning against someone's gate in front of this building. And I was like, what? And I looked more closely and it was this enormous photograph, printed out framed photograph of the block that I grew up on taken by this guy who was our neighbor, George Bassett. He had a pet parrot and it was, and like the sky in the photograph, it's sunset and it looks like, like a pink heart floating. (laughs) Like it sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. But like, I was like, Oh my God, that's, that is literally a portal to my childhood. Like right there. Did you take it? Yes, I took it home. I I was like, (laughs) and I just, and like, I, I don't believe, I don't know. Like, I don't believe that he put it there, but I do, but I do know that it was some, there were some heavy vibrations. You know what I mean? Like there was it would have meant it would have meant the world to me any day but the day that i found it i needed it and there it was I get very sentimental about things like that to see places where, you know, my husband Aaron died. So to see like 
a picture of a concert that I know he was at. Like I watched that Woodstock 99 documentary because he was <laughs> He drove across the country. And oh then his God. car died in New York and his stepdad had to like send him bus fare to oh get home. God. By the way, I was like, I was a different kind of kid. There's, I wasn't allowed to do, I wouldn't have gone anyway. So I'd have been like, oh, outside, no. Ooh, no. so much sun. No, thank you. I just to see things that see versions of a world that they existed in yeah. is yeah. so magical. Yeah. I do have one other question for you yeah. too, because yeah. as I was like thinking about this episode and like writing parts of this episode, I was also thinking about how objects are a form of time travel, memories are a form of time travel, and I'm wondering what are things that bring your dad back to you or experiences that bring your dad back to you? I mean, I have all of, I have so many of his things, right? So I have lots of objects. I have still now all of his, not all of his, but like a lot of his friends. Like I, I feel really lucky that because I have the same job as he did, I know so many people who worked with him in various ways. Like the other week I went in to record um, like a little sort of author's note that I wrote for the paperback about my dad dying just to be like, P.S. Things have changed. (laughs) And the guy who was the engineer at Penguin Random House was like, I recorded your dad. I, and I I mean, like that kind of stuff happens to me all the time, all the time. So I feel like at least right now, like I'm living in a world and I, I exist in a world that is full of memories of him and interactions with him. But then like the real answer that like, I haven't touched yet are his books that like he wrote 20 plus books and he is in all of them. He is in all of them. I mean, just like what you, you know, you said this at the beginning that like, you know, this book I am clearly in, but uh, fiction writers are always putting themselves in their books in, in ways big and small. And so, you know, my dad was from Milwaukee. And so like, there's a lot of Milwaukee in all of his books, even the ones that take place like on a Caribbean Island, like PS, guess what? There's still Milwaukee, his favorite foods and drinks, (laughs) you know, like just like places that he loved things that he loved are like his books are full of those things. And like, I can't, I can't even look at them right now. (laughs) Like I can't because it's, it's too much. It's too much. Just like, I can't, like I have all these voicemails and emails and videos and things, and I can't look at them too much. You know, like there's one voice message that I could listen to just because it only makes me laugh because he said it's like just a joke. Like it's just him like being like, this is the version in apartment 2F and you're making too much noise. It's literally nonsense. But yeah, like I feel like I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet to dive back into his books. 
just because they're so rich with him. Yeah. But like, that's the very best part of having a parent who is an artist who leaves like a, a, like an enormous body of work behind. And like, that's what, that is what makes me so excited about this book of mine is that my kids will have this record of me and my dad together forever. There are rules to time travel stories. One of them being this. You can't stay there. You can't stay in the past or the future, not without ruining something or everything. The place we belong always needs us. And that's true in life, too. We can only ever live this version of our lives, even when it's one we didn't choose and do not prefer. Our time travel is limited to our memories, to the objects left behind, to wandering through our minds, exploring the what-ifs, what we would do or say if we could go back and see our people again. I would just hold on and I would let him eat a whole pint of blueberries because... I used to ration them (laughs) over a week. And I would just let him eat the whole thing this time. And I would take a nap with him. Even though he was not a fan of contact naps, I would just make that happen. And I I would just have a normal day. I would just have a really normal day, probably at our house because we left being home. And yeah. That's what I would do. Not really even anything special. Just the magic of a boring day. That's my contribution. Hi, Nora. This is Patrick in Virginia. You know who I am. Anywho, so if I could go back to when Laura was still alive, first thing I would make a lot of bets on, like, sporting events and stuff where I already know the outcome because I'm time traveling from the future. And then with the money I accumulate from that, we never really got to travel a lot, and it's something I've done a lot since she died, and there's places I've been, things I've done that I think she would have really enjoyed, so I would have just taken some time and travel for and just appreciated our time together a lot more. It's just amazing how fleeting everything can be, and you just never know that you're going to miss it until it's gone, and I just wish I had that time back with her. What I would say, for sure, I would let her know that she was one of the most badass people I ever met, and she needs to hear it. She needs to hear that she was, like, take no shit, and she's one of the coolest people I ever met. Hi, Nora. If I could go back to when my husband was alive... He died when I was 28, and I'm almost 35 now. I would spend most of whatever time we had just lying in bed, spooning, making love, and talking, and just being. And 
and I would have gotten into therapy while he was sick. I wouldn't have cared about people's opinions and judgments when I was making decisions about our prenuptial agreement and my future and how I was or wasn't financially protected or legally protected. And I would have not given up my career to be a caregiver, even though it was such an honor to caregive for him had I known that I wouldn't be able to get my career back after six years. I would not have done that. And I would have delegated more and asked people to bring us food and advocated for myself, whether that was making my own food, meal train, or whatever. And I would have taken more breaks from caregiving for things like a massage or meditation or anything because I'm also still really challenged physically from the way that I abused my body and neglected my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs for so long. I love him and I miss him and I would do a lot of things differently if I knew then what I know now. Um, If I could go back to when my dead person was alive and tell them something. Oh man, this is kind of hard. Um, but if I could go back to when I was 20 and my mom was still alive, um, I just basically record her telling me her life story, uh, what her favorite color was, her favorite food, her high school crush, her first boyfriend, the things that a teenager doesn't ever care about asking their mom, I would do that. She was also a single mom for a short period of time when my older brother was born. Her husband left her, and that happened to me. And I didn't have her to reach out to in my deepest, darkest moment. I would love to know her deepest fears, her greatest joys. I want all of it. Um, And then I guess the same could be said for my dad. He died when I was 23. Um, I want to know what it was like growing up with 12 siblings what it was like to be poor, living on a farm, on an old Civil War battlefield. Um, I would love to know his first job out of college and about his time in the military. He was a Morse code something. I don't even know what, but I know he did Morse code, and I would love to know. I would love to know his deepest fears, his greatest joys. If I could say one thing to people who don't have dead people, is ask the questions, because one day, One day you'll want to know him. Hi, Nora. My name is Pam. You know, my husband died when he was 32. And one of the things that I still think about, I thought about a lot in that first year following his death was all of the times that, you know, it would be a really beautiful day outside. And we would both say, oh, I wish we didn't have to work today. And we could just go on an adventure always with our dog. And... You know, instead we were always responsible, usually responsible adults and did not take that PTO or call in sick. And so, yeah, if if I could go back in time, I would take those days off, absolutely, because we were saving them up for some future vacation that never happened. And it would have been great to 
go on those spontaneous adventures every time we wanted. I desperately wish I could travel back in time and just spend a day being a friend. He died right when we crossed that threshold between parent, child, oh, you're actually pretty cool. We should hang out. And I would do anything to just spend a day like running errands with him, like dropping off the recycling at the place downtown, going to the hardware store, um, complaining about the prices at the grocery store. I just want to be his friend. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been The Terrible Reading Club. Thank you to everyone who reached out to share their time travel wishes with us and to our guest, Emma Straub. Her book, This Time Tomorrow, is out wherever you get books. I cannot recommend it highly enough. We will link it in our show description. If you buy books through our links, you're supporting our show. We get a small affiliate commission. We also have uh, an entire collection of basically all the books we've ever talked about on this podcast or on Terrible Thanks for Asking, also linked to our bookshop on bookshop.org. Bookshop.org also supports small independent bookstores, so it's just a win-win-win-win-win when you think about it. Terrible Reading Club is a production of Feelings & Co. Feelings & Co. is an independent, small company making podcasts in a sea of big creators, big budgets. We like it this way. We do it this way on purpose so we can make what we want, when we want, and how we want, and hopefully how you want as well. You can support our show also by sharing it with literally anybody rating and reviewing it. We have a Substack where we do book giveaways, and I do have a dream of having some of you on this podcast to talk books with me. So let me know if that sounds interesting. Our team is myself, Nora McInerney, Karen Esveg, Claire McInerney, Megan Palmer, and Marcel Malikibu. You can find all of our shows and our store at feelingsand.co slash terrible reading club. Our email is terrible reading club at feelingsand.co. 